0: To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.
1: The strategy of dissimulating, you know, by, oh, we're just, this one's just journalism, and and this one's about ethics, and this, this is actually just, it was already scheduled. You know, this constant sort of noise to sort of hide what's really going on misses the point, which is that once the piece is published in this world, it is going to do more damage than any of us could hope to fix by even getting a withdrawal or anything, you know? At this point, like, the damage is done no matter what anyone's feelings or opinions were on that. And if the Times doesn't know that, that's probably a greater condemnation of them than if they do.
2: to the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you if you're listening to this and you're not a patron that is probably because we unlocked this episode if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes order a copy of health communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at panel underscore. So today, Jules and I are joined by friend of the panel, Vicki Osterweil, to talk about a recent open letter to the New York Times sent by contributors, writers, and journalists who have worked with the paper in the past, expressing serious concerns about editorial bias in the newspaper's coverage of trans people and the resulting drama that has followed. Vicky is the author of the book, In Defense of Looting, and she has been a writer and media worker for a very long time. She is currently working on her next book called The Extended Universe, coming in 2024 from Haymarket. Vicky, welcome back to the death panel. It is so great to have you back on the show.
1: Oh, my God. It's so nice to be here with you and and Jules, even if the circumstances are, um, as often, unideal.
2: I'm always, we're always finding ourselves in this position and having to apologize, (laughs) you know, you come spend an hour with us having a lot of fun raging about the worst thing that you could possibly talk about right now. So.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's the brand.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Gotta stay on brand. So all joking aside to just sort of set the stage for a moment, as we have been covering on death panel for a very long time, The New York Times has played a large role in laundering anti-trans narratives at the very same moment that the United States has seen an explosion of anti-trans legislation at the state level, especially for youths. And conservatives have also openly stated that they are targeting kids because it is an easy argument against trans care in general, and the first step in a larger goal of banning all transition care in the United States. Now, on the morning of Wednesday, February 15th, a group of New York Times contributors, writers, and journalists sent an open letter to the paper's head of standards, Philip Corbett, calling out the paper for, quote, following the lead of far-right hate groups in presenting gender diversity as a new controversy warranting new punitive legislation. As the open letter notes, over 15,000 words of front-page Times coverage debating the propriety of medical care for trans children have been published in the last eight months alone. The bottom line here is that the Times has clearly staked a position that is harmful to trans people and is holding its coverage of trans medicalization to very different standards than other issues. And the response to the letter has been pretty hard to watch play out. It's also worth just stating because accusations of bias are all around this issue. And sometimes at the center of it, our coverage of The New York Times was actually cited in the letter, um, specifically an episode that we did with Jules before she was on the panel um, about a piece Cited in the letter written by Emily Bazelon um, in June of 2022 that was both harmful and historically inaccurate. So just to start us off there, I can't even really begin to capture the full context of of the situation in an an, an opening um, frame like this. But we should lay out what the letter was, what some of the points that were made inside of it, and then we can get into things like the response after that, you know, from the newspaper managers and also from some of the usual suspects like Matt Iglesias, Jonathan Chait, Jesse Single at all. I think rather than let the haters have the first word here, you know, they've spent the last few days oscillating <laughs> uh. between freaking out about journalistic ethos and then doubling down on anti-trans bullshit So I think we should spend some time doubling down ourselves and lay out because it always bears repeating, you know, what exactly some of the issues are with The New York Times coverage of trans people and trans medicalization specifically. You know, while the accusations that this open letter constitutes a bunch of freelance writers bullying a giant, hugely (laughs) powerful newspaper are categorically hilarious, like objectively funny. Personally, I think it's better to privilege the very valid critiques um, that are contained within this open letter before we engage with the sort of secondary and tertiary pundit brain bullshit that has reverberated and really drawn attention away from like what the actual critiques are.
1: I think you mean terfiary B. Um,
2: Turfiary. Oh, sorry, exactly. that's terrible.
1: <laughs> you shouldn't have invited me. This is what happens. Such a good
2: pun though. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, it's about ethics and medical journalism, you know? Um, mm. No, but uh, I mean, I, I, I don't really want to speak for too long because I think, you know, basically so much of my understanding comes from, you know, for example, that show, like the work y'all do here, Jules, your work is so important here. Um, but I think, you know, that that one of the things that's really um that that I want to say about the letter is that it was really quite measured <laughs> and um and yeah. and polite mm-hmm. and refuting refuting points and asking for a lack, you know, for appealing to the New York Times' own standards, right? It was not um a sort of radical cri de corps, Um, you know. But I think I think Jules, I mean, if you don't mind me tossing the hot potato, I think you'll do a great job sort of summarizing that letter if you if you're up for it. Sure, sure.
0: I'm very happy to. Um, and, you know, I was happy to sign the letter as one of the now over, I think, 1,000 contributors yeah. to the New York Times. Um, you know, I've been both a source, you know, for a number of different stories um, over the years. I've also published an op-ed at the New York Times. So it's like, you know, the the context of the letter is actually professional, right? This is a letter put together by contributors, people who have worked with or for or written or published with the New York Times. And it's addressed to the standards editor, right? So it's an Mm -hmm. open letter, but it has a very particular um, professional context. This is a group of journalists and then other folks like myself or sort of part-time journalists, but certainly contributors in a broader sense um, that are raising questions around you know, sort of the fairness of coverage and really questions about the practice and ethics or the craft of journalism, right? And so, you know, that's why the letter is really quite narrowly tailored in that way. It talks about the New York Times' own editorial guidelines, which in particular demand that reporters, quote, preserve a professional detachment free of any whiff of bias. Um, and you know also talks about the relationship with sources, you know, that you know journalists working at the Times are expected to remain quote sensitive that personal relationships with news sources can erode into favoritism in fact or appearance. And so, you know, on that basis of the New York Times's own editorial standards, the letter raises a couple of concerns. And you know, I think they're you know, there are broader concerns about, you know, sort of media coverage of trans healthcare, of trans kids, of trans people and trans politics. But obviously the Times plays an outsized role in the media environment and has also generated a significant degree of controversy. And so the letter mentions, you know, for example, the article by Emily Bazelon, um, you know, which we've talked about on this show before. And, mm. um, you know, where a lot of people who were interviewed as sources for that piece were really frustrated and uncomfortable with the result of it and the way that certain anti-trans groups were given a lot of airtime in that piece without like a lot of context about, you know, perhaps how they're ideological drift and their junk science is informing things there's also reference to Katie Baker's more recent feature when students change gender identity and parents don't know you know which just like the way it framed the ostensible events at hand was like quite misleading at times Um, but then there's also I think you know so there's this sort of specific kind of professional question about the quality, you know, of the journalistic work being undertaken at the Times. But then there's sort of a broader question that the the letter also asks, which is, you know, does it matter, for example, that right-wing politicians, governors, states' attorney generals, love citing New York Times articles, you know, both op-eds and journalistic feature pieces in support of really violent anti-trans legislation, including the banning of healthcare itself. Um, And so part of what's frustrating obviously is that the uptake of this work, it's not just the airing of ideas, right? It has already real world impacts. Um, And also, you know, one of the challenges is that one of the critiques I think that people have brought to bear on this, you know, body of coverage is that it often ignores the larger political context. So you'll read this whole long article Uh, that makes a a really narrowly framed so-called debate between medical professionals and people who it turns out actually are part of like anti-trans groups. But that happens sort of in a narrative vacuum and you don't see all of the bills, the hundreds of bills targeting um, young people that like absolutely are even more moral panicked and out of control than any of the people, you know, presented in these sort of, you know, neutrally, liberally written kind of, like, um, articles, right? So there's there's that aspect. And then finally, I think the other thing that this letter brings up that's really powerful um, is a little bit of historical context. Is this the first time the New York Times has been, like, subject to these kinds of criticisms? Absolutely not. Um, and, you know, two areas that the letter goes into that I think are so clarifying first, right, is the, like, truly decades-long push that it took to get the New York Times to stop covering gay people with just, like, the most terrible homophobic, you know, (laughs) veneer of objectivity. The New York Times' long-standing penchant for speaking only of homosexuals and homosexuality, which just, you know, led to a lot of really awful kind of very similar articles that we're seeing now about trans people. And then also the New York Times coverage about AIDS. Uh, And, you know, it's, you know, platforming of people like William F. Buckley, you know, who famously published an op-ed arguing that people with HIV or AIDS should be forcibly tattooed on their arm and on their ass. And that was published in the New York Times. So it's like... (sighs) Huh. I mean, you know, I think there's a narrowness that's like really nicely concrete here because we're dealing with like the question of how journalism broadly participates in and produces moral panic, circulates disinformation, disavows its own political roles. But the the way that the letter, you know, sort of like follows a through line, I think is really powerful from actual questions about specific pieces to the way that. The times is utilized by one side of a political struggle disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And then you know, this sort of larger context of, well, this isn't just something that The Times has had to face, you know, about trans people or trans issues. This is a broader question, you know, about journalistic accountability and professional practice and standards, right? And so I think that that's the way I would characterize it. And then the last thing maybe I would say, you know, I know this is a long summary of the letter, but I think it's fabulous. You know, I've seen a few people talk about this this week, I know for a lot of us, you know, who have been out there, you know, doing public advocacy work, who do writing and research in this area, also who just are trans, we felt very exhausted, very isolated at times. It's been very challenging to feel like we have solidarity and support um from people who don't necessarily have personal skin in the game, and there is just something about scrolling through the signatories, like Wow. You know, just to see people Mm -hmm. come out, like this is a powerful demonstration of solidarity from journalists, artists, culture makers, writers, uh, you know, novelists, like people who are, you know, a part of the community and contribute to the institution of the New York Times really adopting this kind of, you know, critical posture and these series of asks Um, for the New York Times to do better and respond to these issues in a substantial way. I just want to say, I think that that's something that's actually like new in a positive sense for me. I just, it's been a while since I felt this kind of like, oh, look at all the people who agree and all of the people who are willing to put their name and sign on to something like this. So I just also want to say, I think that that's a wonderful, a wonderful reflection of how significant and substantial and tangible um, these critiques are. It's not just sort of like, um, Anyways, it's, you know, all of the the hand-wringing and pearl-clutching over these, we're just bullying them and we're so mm-hmm. mean because, you know, we're so powerful. <laughs> us who are having our healthcare banned and taken away and losing all of our civil rights and are subject to more interpersonal and political violence than we've ever been in the last several decades. Yeah, you know, us, the super powerful trans people. Um, it's wonderful to see a broad range of trans and non-trans people signing on to this letter. But that's my sort of long form. I feel like my explanation of the letter is longer than the actual <laughs> letter. So thank you for indulging me, but you know, no, can't help no, but editorialize.
2: I think it's also important to, to just like really quickly underline one point that you made, Jules, which is like, okay, on one side, you have these pieces of coverage that the New York Times is like, we're very proud of. These, this is fair and balanced reporting. We're avoiding bias here, mm-hmm. right? And the Basla and Peace piece, in particular, I'm thinking of, right, which is really kind of framed as like, this very typical story we see that's geared towards a kind of white middle class um, parent that's concerned about, you know, the kind of health uh, impacts and sort of virality of different like social contagions. It's like Mm. the nightly news viewer who's who's pulled in by the, here's the codes that kids are using to text each other about sex. You know, like, it's (laughs) that kind of target audience, right? And to see, okay, so we've got this piece, and, you know, we're being called out because, um, you know, people we spoke to for the piece, people the reporter spoke to are unhappy with how their research was portrayed in the piece, thinking of Beans Velosi here, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Beyond that, I have heard from like many other people who spoke to Bazelon who would prefer to remain unnamed, who also were in the exact same position as Beans and heard my interview with Beans and reached out to say, off the record, me too. And it was so frustrating and it made me reconsider Mm. ever speaking to The New York Times again as a source, right? And to then have a letter with a thousand contributors and over 20,000 subscribers, media workers, (sighs) readers of The New York Times Mm -hmm. signing on in solidarity weighted against the fact that then you are reporting that you're so proud of and say it's so fair and balanced is being cited by conservative Republicans in state law battles to try and retrench any sort of protections that trans kids have in school, whether that's like a bathroom bill or being able to sort of have privacy from sort of a state surveillance of of and counting of like sort of how many trans kids are are popping up like Texas is doing. Right. It's this kind of like absolutely ridiculous comparison if you actually lay out on the table you know what the two sides of sort of use value and critique are and to think that their response could be no no we're very proud of this reporting
1: yeah and and i think that's really great and and jules yeah i also i found myself scrolling those names multiple times i also experienced that that way um you know of sort of like oh wow okay this like feels a little better and you know, um, uh, coming from sort of a personal position on some of this, like I-, I tend to not do as much of the turf beat as, as other people do. Um, you know, there's only so much mental health capacity I have and, and I tend to sort of not always follow these things, but, um, for me, like, I think I can point to some stuff that's sort of more direct and more personal, and, and, but third, sort of third, second or third hand um, that speaks to how this happens structurally, right? So um, mm-hmm. this, the second article um, that is mentioned, Katie Baker's feature um, about you know, students changing their gender identity, which really spends a lot of time talking to parents who are just mm-hmm. very concerned and upset that they didn't know that their trans kids were trans, you know, and they, the school didn't tell them. It didn't have like a, you know, a moral obligation to, to report on it. And I've heard, you know, from from people who are, who are close to the process of that story that that story was in production for months and it started, um, as I understand it, as a story about the Alliance Defending Freedom, the ADF, mm. the like big right-wing, you know, fascistic, you know, anti-LGBT hate group uh, mm-hmm. from the Christian right that funds the parents who are talked to. And again, this is, you know, this is third hand, but but I, I feel confident enough to share it saying that like the editorial process on that piece over time pulled all of that out, Right pulled out all of the context saying, you know, these parents are funded and organized by the right, you know? And eventually we get this piece that literally just gives their worldview, right? Without any reference to the context of who they are, where they're coming from, you know? And then the times then, as you're saying, B defends it on the grounds of journalism, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, we talked to all these people. There was so much journalism when in fact, like, you know, and again, this is my understanding, but it, 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 you know, it, Jibes with other stuff I've experienced, you know, being edited by by publications. I've never written for the Times, but and and other people's experience as well. That what's actually happening, you know, the way the sausage is actually getting made is that it is being all mm. of this political context that the letter criticizes them for having. Like, I mean, I don't know about the case with Baselons, but but it seems like with you know Katie Baker's piece, they literally took that out. That that was sort of how it started, you know. And it, this doesn't matter. The point isn't to the point isn't to talk about, you know, whether, whatever, Katie Baker as a writer or the piece as a, as a thing, I think. But the point is to show that there's this editorial process that is using the cover of journalistic objectivity to actually remove information mm-hmm. that would allow people to understand how these processes are actually working. And, you know... I don't think it's a mistake that in this same moment, Ron DeSantis, it's discovered, has requested the medical records of trans students in, in Florida, mm-hmm. which is horrifying, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 there's no way that people, um, you know, parents couldn't read this piece and say, well, it makes sense to me, you know, because the parents should know, you mm-hmm. know, they don't, the kids are away at college, they should have a right to know, and it's dangerous, and they'll make permanent changes or whatever <laughs> it is, but um, but I think the other thing, even if you don't, you know, love my sort of third hand, you know, heard about it from editors and other writers um, stuff, if you wonder what the Times perspective on it is, right? The day after this letter was sent and Glad sent their letter as well, they ran a massive piece defending jk rowling
0: mm-hmm. and saying
1: that her anti-trans stuff is over over reported on and it's misunderstood you know th- i mean jk rowling as anyone who listens to the panel or indeed exists on the internet knows over the last three years has completely come clean about the fact that she is a, a raving you know uh anti-trans maniac basically you know um and as a maniac you know i i'm upset to hear that that there would be one who's so bad like that but you know what i mean like She's, she's really clear about her politics, so to have that come out the day after the letter, and again, um, New York Times editors on Twitter defended that as like, oh, you know, this piece was in production for a long time. Well, there's a phrase, it's called stop the presses. <laughs> it is so common for editors to change the content of their newspaper in order to meet a particular moment because it's important that they do that, that there is a common cultural image of that, right? Um, there is no way. I mean, you know, again, this is speculation and like, I am not, you know, but, but I, I would be shocked if there wasn't an editorial meeting at the times where they talked about whether they should publish the Rowling piece in the face of this letter. I don't mm-hmm. know that they did that for sure, but, but you know, all of these things and the, the point of bringing up all of these, this is sort of nitty gritty inside baseball, how the sausage gets made some other cliche that you also enjoy about this. Um, but like, the reason that we get into that is actually not in order to talk about the specific pieces, but to talk about how each specific instance can have pretty particular formal journalistic excuses made around it. You know, um, mm-hmm. but the aggregate does in fact reveal a clear position and a clear opinion, and the 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 strategy of dissimulating, you know, by. Oh, we're just this one's just journalism, and it's this one's about ethics, and this this is actually just it was already scheduled, you know this constant sort of noise, um, you know thanks you know Jonathan Chait, all these people you know make to sort of hide what's really going on, and even sometimes people on the left arguing about whether such and such a writer is you know a transphobe or whatever misses the point, which is that once the piece is published in this world, it is going to do more damage than any of us. Could hope to fix by even getting a withdrawal or anything, you know. At this point, like the damage is done, no matter what anyone's feelings or opinions were on that. And the times, you know, if the times doesn't know that, that's probably a greater condemnation of them than if they do, right? But they know their role as political operators, I imagine, and it doesn't really matter because the point is that there is this way in which journalism you know, with a capital J and truth with a capital T um, and, you know, non-bias gets used to build this huge smoke screen that requires people like me and Jules who, you know, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Jules, but like, you know, I'm exhausted enough, you know, dealing with this in my daily life, you Mm -hmm. know, and then we have to go in and like learn these little intricate details and like sound Mm -hmm. sort of paranoid or like, you know, like, like conspiratorial. And so again, like, uh, like Jules was saying, one of the things that's so powerful about the letter for me um, is precisely the feeling that like, oh, wow, okay, like, this is finally, like, this is not working. This smokescreen really isn't working. Mm. Look at all of these people who don't buy mm-hmm. it anymore, you know? And I think, like, you know, I mean, not to whatever, big up y'all too much, but I do love your show and, and listen all the time. And, like, you know, Aww. I think the work that you do and the work that, that, that um, folks like, like, you know, um, Tom Skoka, who wrote the piece about the 15,000 words the 15, and did all that 000. research.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. All, all these people, all this work, it's starting to have an effect and I think part mm. of why I wanted to, you know, I wanted to come on today, not just because I just had in the hot gossip, you know, but I also wanted to come <laughs> on today because, um, because I, I do see that like it didn't work for the Republicans in the midterms. It wasn't an effective electoral strategy, and so if it starts to fail also as an ideological strategy in the long term, that does give me some hope. Even though in the short term, here we are having this conversation again, you know, mm-hmm. and and that's really frustrating.
2: No, that's such so, a good point.
0: It's such a good point. And, it, you know, I think that that, you know, just for a little more context, as we're having this conversation, some things, you know, to keep in mind, you know, there is this open letter from contributors, right? And part of that has to do with the, you know, the strange experience for those of us. It's not just that we are trans and like, hey, guess who's thought more about this than um, pundits <laughs> who have just taken up this beat because it's, you know, it C- couldn't
2: gets yeah, and be it trans people, no. right?
0: I mean, I think there are interesting <laughs> questions. Oh, but it's
1: so profitable. It's so profitable to talk about. That's why we do it. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> know, y'all,
2: y'all are just on the take from Big Pharma, Big Estrogen.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, Big Estrogen. Yeah. Oh, Don't get me started yeah. about her. But yeah, you know, seriously, part of part of what was so frustrating, you know, in the response in the initial response from the New York Times was first, you know, there was um, a statement from. Charlie Stotlander, director of external communication, which just actually made a factual error. Um, you know, it conflated this open letter from New York Times contributors with the letter from GLAD, which you know, both letter, you know, both both groups writing letters were aware of each other, but like they're not. It's not the same letter. They weren't coordinating. GLAD did not deliver the contributors' letter to the Times, but the Times statement um, from Stotlander. Like, says that (laughs) that's what happened, which is just as a matter of fact, untrue, right? And, but the reason that the statement makes that claim is then to go on to say that, quote, GLAAD's advocacy mission and the Times journalism mission are different. And there's this immediate wedge being driven in the response, um, which is a wedge that's also picked up in an internal memo from the New York Times sent to its staff, right, which also advised them that they absolutely cannot participate in criticizing the, the, the paper and they can't participate in any protest or organizing So it's also this like, you know, um, anti-worker, you know, sort of labor intervention, you know, which touches on ongoing issues at the Times, but this sort of attempt to drive a wedge immediately. Right. And and argue that the edifice of journalistic objectivity is what distinguishes the Times um, from trans people who are contaminated and biased by their predilection for Mm -hmm. advocacy. So the fact that we would like, for example, you know, access to to the healthcare that we already have, or that we, um, you know, prefer to be treated with basic human dignity and respect, and we don't like to be lied about, misrepresented, we don't enjoy, you know, wild conspiracy theories, misinformation, and libel about us as people being circulated in papers of record, all of that you know, all of our um, expertise is delegitimized as as reducing it to advocacy, which the times which is really, you know, again, this is a very smart strategy, because it allows the times to turn its professional deficit, its lack of trans people in the newsroom, its lack of its lack of interest in hearing from trans experts, and turn that into a positive value. Oh, no, actually, we are objective, because we don't we don't. We only publish, you know, non-trans people's takes on this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, that I think is really, you know, kind of at the crux of where, you know, what you were saying, Vicky, it brings us back to this structural dilemma, right? It's like, I, you know, I'm tired all the time. I'll always be tired. Um, but, you know, it's like, I'm not mad at individual journalists. Honestly, I don't care what their motivations are. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like, I really don't even... I'm not personally mad at Pamela Paul or Jonathan Chay. I mean, I could be <laughs> mad at them, but like that's not the site of my critique, right? Um, it's not that I want... Their speech silenced or I want them, you know, this or that, right? It's actually a structural, impersonal question about the role of journalism and journalistic ethics and the sort of structural role that The Times is playing in magnifying a certain story about trans people that is, one, on its face, incorrect, right? Like, every time yeah. I read these different stories, you know, as someone who is an expert in the history, of trans youth's uh, relationship in medicine, I just always see actual errors, like that, these assertions, these foundational, oh, trans kids didn't start, you know, transitioning until 1990s, or the only reference point for this (laughs) is this Dutch clinic, those are incorrect (laughs) assertions, you know, and I happen to have written a long peer reviewed book about this that, you know, I have that also the Times is quite aware of, right, like, because I've been interviewed Mm -hmm. about it, I published an op ed based on it, right. So it's, like there is this sort of structural problem, right? It's not so much like each individual story is really the thing that um, people are criticizing. And of course, I think that's why um, this sort of reactionary kind of closing ranks here has tried to construe everything as sort of hysterical reaction to individual stories and got sort of mucked, you know, kind of bogged down in the mud of that rather than understanding that this is a much broader context. And if you're, you know, presenting a misleading story 90% of the time, and then 10% of the time will publish, you know, decent pieces, right? Like it's been interesting to watch mm-hmm. the occasional well-written piece get published recently and, and it's like, that's great. But, you know, sometimes it's also very concerning. Like, you know, Jamel Bowie had that, like, excellent op-ed and that had the word trans in the title. And then, like, a week later, they removed the word trans from the title. <laughs> like, they mm-hmm. literally detransed the headline. <laughs> um, and so it's like, okay. Or, like, they hired, you know, David French, you know, as a columnist who's, like, sort of known as rapidly, you know, like you know, almost evangelically anti-trans and then like didn't renew the contract of Jennifer Finney Boylan, who is a trans woman and an incredibly accomplished, you know, writer um, who like has a book on the, you know, bestsellers list at the moment, you know, at the time. So it's like there are these larger decisions that in the aggregate have impacts and that those impacts are the impacts that people are calling attention to. Oh, regardless of any individual journalist's work or, you know, regardless of any individual story, there is a broader um, unfolding that has also we can track over time. Right. The anti-trans bills have Mm -hmm. gotten worse. They have proliferated. We are sitting here in the middle of February and we have more anti-LGBT and anti-trans bills proposed in this first, you know, six or seven weeks of the year. Then we had all of last year, and last year was already a record setting year. We're at over 300 pieces of legislation. And so, if the paper is contributing to an environment where there's an accelerated targeting of a vulnerable minority and it's not even incorporating that aspect into its own coverage, well, then that 90, 10, or whatever that number really looks like, is bias. Um, and so, like, mm-hmm. you know, mobilizing journalistic objectivity and saying that the only people who are biased are trans people is just on its face absurd. Um, but it's also absurd in the context of this letter, because when you go and look at the list of signatories, we have broad-based support. It's not a bunch of trans people who just got together and said, hi, we're trans people who are mad about how The New York Times writes about us, right? It, I mean, which would have been fine, That, but that's a different form of advocacy, right? This is... A bunch of professionals, some of whom are trans, but many of whom are not, who have serious questions about the political bias built in structurally to this institution in a broader media environment where people are being endangered. And so that's where something like the Pamela Paul piece for me, right, I, I, I'm, I'm neutral on like the JK Rowling industrial complex of like hot takes and pieces like whatever, you know. <laughs> But of course, you know, it's interesting that a defense of her would be published, first of all, in the wake of the the killing of a trans teenage girl yes. in the UK, you yes. know, in an environment yeah. deliberately stoked and funded, you know, philanthropically by J.K. Rowling. But also people were watching on Twitter this past week the way that Rowling, who is a billionaire, let us all remind ourselves is, you know, able to make use of the United Kingdom's particularly low standard um, of proof for libel in order to basically go after, you know, people with very small followings on social media, threaten them with a lawsuit, and then get them to recant and apologize to J.K. Rowling personally for, say, you know, raising the question of her links to far-right groups that have open sympathies with um, contemporary Nazis, right? And it's like, okay, so what is danger, right? The danger that, you know, Pamela Paul contends, again, it's like we can debunk it in the context of her article, but in the larger media environment, it's like, who's really in danger here? You know, a trans kid was just killed in the UK. um, And JK Rowling is also like, you know, effectively utilizing her wealth to silence her critics. So hold on a second. And then the New York Times is considering that as a vulnerability that shows that trans people have gone too far. I mean... Hold on, right? When we zoom out and look at that, then I think <laughs> right. it's pretty it's clear really what's going on.
1: Exactly, yeah. And like, as the unhinged anarchist with um, less professional worries, um, I can sort of say <laughs> that like it looks pretty clear from my vantage point that um, J.K. Rowling... Has responded to the murder of yes. uh, uh, um, mm. in the UK by making sure sympathetic coverage is happening to downplay her potential role in it. Mm. Um, and you know that is um, purely a theory of mine and is not a fact. And I am not claiming that is true, um, dear lawyers who are listening. But um, you know, I think also like that's exactly right. That that the reason I brought up the Pamela Paul piece, um, although I you know. S- Um, what is it? Vented some spleen about Rowling uh, as I did Mm. it. But the reason I brought it up was precisely because of the way it functions structurally in the moment. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, this is the sort of thing that um, that, you know, you're pointing out so well, Jules, I I exactly agree with that. There's this, this way in which journalism gets used as a, as a shield for um, a certain kind of very, very obvious political action. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I sort of made a joke about it earlier, but I kind of want to bring it up, but please feel free to, like, cut this if it's not really relevant. But, like, um, you know, in, in, in 2014, like, I don't know if people... I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an old. I've been doing this stuff for a while. Like, if people remember Gamergate, mm-hmm. like, which which is widely recognized as having given birth to the alt-right. Gamergate successfully um, managed to maintain cover for itself for months and months by just yelling over and over again, it's about games journalism, it's about ethics in journalism. Mm. That was a slightly different case because it was sort of a bottom-up, you know, internet troll thing. But like, as someone who was writing sometimes about video games at that time, I watched journalists who I liked, you know, games journalists, sort of both sides it, because mm-hmm. they just insisted on the existence of journalism as they went on to destroy the careers of trans and queer and pe- women of color in the game space, you know. And it took years for for games journalism to recover from the damage done. And I, I don't know that it really even has, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, the um, you know worse than games journalism. That was how much of the alt right found each other, right? And like so, stuff like this that feels maybe a little like nitpicky or or small. These cultural moments. Like they grow, they bloom, they turn into in the street political, or or it doesn't need to be in the street. I don't want to make that hierarchy, but they turn into like real political movements. And I think that's what the letter does so well, as we've said, is like you can see, and as Jules, you've pointed out all of these bills, the way that this stuff snowballs, but it all snowballs on this grounds, this very, very tenuous grounds of we're just doing journalist objectivity, Mm -hmm. You know, we're just doing journalism. We're just covering both sides. Look, there's a debate happening in public and we're just reprinting the facts of the debate, you know, and you see you you, and then, you know, you spend your time saying those aren't the real facts of the debate and you get angry and they just keep doing it. And then eventually, like, it doesn't matter anymore because the power that has been put in motion um, has enough overwhelming popular strength and enough um, structural and institutional legitimacy that, you know, you can cite it in a bill, um, you know, in a Congress for people who, again, this is, you know, politicians tend to be some of the least well-informed people you'll ever meet. Um, their aides <laughs> often know things, but uh, politicians are often, you know, they because they are handling so many subjects, um, they are often uh, know very little about any of the things that they're legislating on, right? And so, like, being able to have a dossier of New York Times and The Atlantic and, you know, whoever, whoever else, you know. Um, articles saying, look, here are all these parents who are concerned. And it doesn't point to the political foundations of that, or who's funding those parents, or why those parents in particular are being talked to Or as the letter points out, or as End Time Skoka points out, the hundreds of parents who are happy with their, you know, the, the vast majority of parents who, you know, like their kids and are happy that they're <laughs> thriving, right? Like those parents don't get front page stories. Um, and so like, you know, it, it's... It's how um, it's it's we're watching a sort of red scare, you know, kind of uh, style of political a fascist political campaign be built through these institutions um, that that hide behind a kind of liberal evocation of truth um, mm-hmm. and and objectivity.
2: Well, and also just to sort of bring in this quote from uh, Joe Livingstone in Hellgate, um, New York, which is a great little independent publication. Um, She's one of the people who was sort of involved in um, some of the original drafting of this. She said, quote, I think that The Times has used the deniability of we're just reporting the news to kind of protect itself from itself. I believe that there are editors at The New York Times who believe that they are covering this issue properly, that it is in the public interest to present both sides. I think one of the really key points that I want people to feel hits home is that there's no real separation between the way that we use language and the idea of neutrally covering a subject. To suggest that there is no relationship between the way that we are using language at the newspaper to discuss people's lives, people who are also being debated in court, is to really be willfully ignorant of what it is that we do as journalists. And I feel like that is so much part of this framing, both in the way that the New York Times response um, deliberately collapsed this letter that has a very specific professional context, as you were saying, Jules into the same thing as the letter that was sent by GLAAD, which, again, is explicitly an advocacy organization. Then they kind of framed the inappropriateness of people even signing on to the letter um, professionally within the context of the fact that, like, they were translating and collapsing the professional letter into the one with glad by saying and and you know it's like breaching standards to uh engage in advocacy and that you sort of (laughs) sacrifice this um precious neutrality that you know is sort of the only reason that that you're valuable as as a contributor to this paper right you know and so this kind of idea of like both the role of like speech and language and who it comes from being so specific, coupled with the fact that we also know that one of the things that they're being explicitly called out for is sort of de-identifying sources within Mm -hmm. the context of Mm -hmm. coverage of transmedicalization in particular. And, you know, as someone who has recently done more writing with more mainstream publications, like the, to, to get something sort of through with that little context, To de-identify someone that way. That doesn't like happen by accident. More often than not, if you misaccurate, if you, you know, misattribute someone's association, like you're gonna be in like a five to six email long chain of like fact-checking, making Mm -hmm. sure that you're getting like the right framing of that person. So to sort of then be doing also this very shady, kind of two-faced way of responding to the critique in the first place. After being called out for this very shady, two-faced way of sort of privileging one view and painting it as neutral, um, while also saying essentially, in in sort of all the public framing of this, that the their their language and reporting has no power. It, it's just um,
0: <laughs> yeah, like
2: pick one, motherfuckers. You exactly. can't have it all. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, and I think Vicky, you're right that like you know them being aware of this is, is really, you know, probably the more likely situation. But if they were somehow unaware of how bad this looked, that that would be even more embarrassing, because it's that obvious at this point. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think that like, one of the things that's really important to remember here, um, about the way that their power operates, right, is that, is that when people hear the phrase, the New York Times, they imagine that level of fact checking, right? They imagine that level of professional seriousness and of, and of facticity. And, um, you know, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes I feel exhausted. I'm like, Oh my God, like, it's so frustrating that, that they have managed to maintain, you know, this, this sense that what they are doing is really rigorously fact-checking and reporting. And it's not just them. It's, it's, it's what few legacy media outlets remain with any influence, which is, you know, fewer and fewer every year. Um, and the way that they get, you know, sort of opposed to someone like Fox News or even MSNBC, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, those, you know, those are advocacy channels, whatever, whatever. But like, you know, the New York Times is, is you know, it's the gray lady, you know, all the news, you know, it's, it's, it's this, there's, there's real standards there. And I think it's really important to note that like, that those standards exist for much of the paper, And that's Mm -hmm. part of how it works too, as you're pointing to, like, as you said, you know, uh, be like, you know, that, that, you know, you get fact checked like that like that's true most of the time that's what happens and so that you know we saw this again not to pull it back again but you know during 2016 2017 when they were covering the alt right um and they were sort of talking about you know the dapper young gentleman i don't think that was the times that was someone else but you know like and they were sort of interviewing these people without talking about their associations without talking about their history and they were just sort of like these are just you know concerned young men who are like active on you know the the, fa- the far right and they like care about this stuff and like the way that that coverage gets given to far right positions and is never never afforded to left positions right mm-hmm. um is not the point exactly but it uh, it is it is it is really important to point out that one of the ways that the liberal journalistic ethics functions is that right-wing reactionary um, advocacy is not advocacy, but left-wing advocacy is a political opinion, is a position.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's 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 exactly right. You know, it's like I, you know, I was remembering, and I often, you know, think about the fact-checking that went into my New York Times op-ed, which was published like two-ish years ago now, you know, which was an op-ed based on the peer-reviewed research I'd already done to write my book, right? So it was like, very easy for me to be fact-checked because I was like, oh, don't worry. I've already been peer-reviewed. I like have all of the archival receipts, but it was like very extensive, let me say. Like I'm yeah. like, you know, showing, you know, primary sources to my editor, right? And like happy to do so because, you know, that really matters to me that the work that I do is empirical, right? It's historical. It is based in reality. Um, and I have all evidence, you know, upon evidence to, you know, but that, that, that obviously isn't happening to the same extent, um, when really crucial pieces of information, um, and context are omitted or just absolutely mischaracterized bordering on untrue statements are published, you know, regularly Mm -hmm. that something like all of us who do this work for a living, you know, would be able to very easily correct if we were the fact checkers. And, and so I wonder if, you know, this is a, a sort of a place to to dig in and think a little bit about what the sort of broader impact and issue is here, because it seems to me that there's like sort of two aspects of impact, right? That are that are sort of the the bigger context in which this particular criticism of the New York Times has been um, has been leveled this past week, and so one of them is, you know, over. Um, trans kids themselves, the breaking off of, of children and youth as sort of a specific lens through which we're supposed to apprehend either only this very narrow, tortured, supposed debate um, or difficult decisions that adults are having to make happening in a vacuum. Um, and then like to restore that context, right, what it actually is. And then the larger question to me is about moral panic and medicalization, the reduction of trans people mm-hmm. to a medical question, right? And that is like bedrock, um, anti-trans position, right? Like to say that trans people themselves don't exist, but for medical transition, that slippage, right. Um, is very, very common, but the, but the first part really quickly, I think we could just kind of get out of the way, right. Which is that all of, you know, and, 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 you know, I, I'm not telling people to go read Jonathan Chait's piece in New York Magazine, but if you want to read it, you know, um, (laughs) It's called "Fight the Anti-Trans Backlash with Accountability, Not Silence." And so, you know, among the sort of ways that he comes to the defense of the Times, although it's weirdly, you know, through the lens of talking about the Tavistock Clinic in the UK, it's all—it's a—it's a jumble of a piece. But you know, basically, <laughs> right? Um, it's
2: such a mess. Yeah, all you all both cons- for
0: reading
1: that, I did not have the yeah. stomach. I really it's appreciate it.
0: Perfectly, <laughs> I'm happy to summarize. But you know, the, the the larger point, which is not one that Chait alone will make, you'll see. Jesse Single, um, Andrew Sullivan, I saw making it as well. Of Mm -hmm. course, many right-wing pundits will make it with much more exaggerated rhetoric. But the point is that there's something peculiar and specific about trans kids transitioning, period, or or because it's getting harder and harder to make that point, um, that somehow trans kids were invented two years ago by doctors, or um, the more respectable version uh, is that like, well... There's maybe just too many kids transitioning or it's happening too fast. There's not enough, you know, gatekeeping standing in the way, which, you know, any trans person could tell you is <laughs> the most, you know, anxious, defensive kind of misrepresentation or inversion of reality possible, right? But all of this is premised yeah. on the idea that there's something unique and legitimate about isolating children and young people. And the large politi- political context of the past year you know, completely gives lie to that assertion. And that has to do with the fact that all of this legislative push to ban, criminalize, and administratively um, defund or destroy gender affirming care for young people is now being followed up immediately, as predicted, as also admitted by some of the right wing interest groups um, driving this push those bans are now being pushed up into adulthood, right? We saw bills Mm -hmm. starting within Oklahoma attempting, you know, bans on gender-affirming care up to the age of 25 or 26. And, you know, it's very clear that it's not actually about kids, right? That ostensible... Um, rationalization or justification is demonstrably untrue because the same arguments are now being used to say that, you know, actually we shouldn't allow, you know, gender-affirming care ever. And some right-wing pundits, you know, are calling for, you know, people who provide that care to be jailed, right, or worse. um, You know, like, that's more like a Candace Owens or a Matt Walsh sort of talking point. But in any case, right, right, the idea that there's something unique to kids here is falsifiable, you know, on its own merits, right? Like, again, I'm always happy to be like um, trans kids have existed for a long time and have been transitioning for a long time. It didn't just start with the Dutch clinic. And the fact that you're interpreting a small relaxation of access as a sudden um explosion in young people actually transitioning is really an assertion with no evidence. And, you know, lots of other sort of debunking people who kind of can do that, you know, really professionally, almost in their sleep, have pointed out how much these assertions that there's something about kids particularly relies on all of these obviously untenable anecdotes about all these sorts of wild ideas about what's going on at gender (laughs) clinics and all these kids basically being pressured and forced into hormones Mm -hmm. and surgeries. Just, like, absolutely the most, like, made-up thing. I mean, just (laughs) is you know satanic panic again like oh exactly yep, yeah a friend of a friend of mine told me this wild story that is kind of hard to believe but yeah it's because it's not verifiable it didn't happen right um and so there's that aspect of it right But it's I,
2: also like it's like if sat- if satanic panic met welfare queen because like, exactly. satanic panic didn't mm-hmm. have policy consequences yeah the way certain other myths had. So it's kind of like in a in a terrible sense, like combining two of our worst tendencies in the United States. Yeah. Right.
1: And but, and but I think, you know, I think there's an argument to be made around the sort of satanic panic stuff. Not yeah. to, you know, like and around um, what was going on in that. Like that's also happening at the same time as the AIDS crisis and at the same time as a sort of generalized pedophile crisis. Mm-hmm. And it did lead to stuff like parks having policies about mm-hmm. adults not being allowed to be near them around minors mm-hmm. and it, you know like it, i agree with you completely be that the 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 connection between the policy and the moral panic right now is much more intense and obvious than it was during satanic panic um i agree that welfare queens in terms of that is is a much better comparison but i think you know um And and as uh, Sophie, Sophie Lewis says, like, you know, like that cis people have been getting gender affirming surgeries and hormone treatments for centuries. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they said, they they wrote about how their mom was on gender affirming hormone treatments. Um, You know, most cis women who go through menopause will be afforded the opportunity to take Mm -hmm. estrogen. Right. Um, Another, uh, you know, um, fact about sort of this sort of myth of the the sort of gender clinic being so magical. um, If a cis man has is having intense testicular pain he can sort of walk into a clinic and be like it's, it's rare but he's like look you got to take these off like he can get an orchiectomy right he can just he can have yeah. them or his his testicles removed if they're causing a lot of pain but if a trans femme wants to do it you know there are these crazy obstacles to that you know and if you were to know that and go in and just say you know like just pretend to be a cis guy and get it out like you can get it done faster right so mm-hmm. the idea that you know as you're as you've you know so well pointed out jules that like that this is um this is this, broad, this this sudden explosion of access it's like it's a fantasy it and is. it's a fantasy on the part of the of the um, of the reactionaries because i think they are terrified the of the reality that their that their gender identity is actually is actually that simply constructed. So they project the fantasy in this reverse way where it's like kids are just confused and they're peer pressured and, you know, they played too much doom. So they shot up Columbine and their friends smoked weed and now they're addicted to crack, whatever the myth is, you know, it's sort of this, like this, this projection of their own anxiety about how easy it would be for this system to crumble, right. Right. Um, In an individual's life, because ultimately it is just a series of ideological ideas maintained by cultural and state power. Right. Um, Yeah. And so I think like, you know, to, to broaden out again a bit, and I, I know I'm all over the place here and I apologize for that, but like to broaden out again, like, you know, the fact that this is happening in the same moment as the Roe v. Wade and the abortion bans are coming into place is like, absolutely. And so many people have pointed this out, but is like absolutely part of what's going on too which is a generalized attack on bodily autonomy and one thing that i think people aren't necessarily speaking to i think is the way that that attack on bodily except for death panel because y'all are fabulous and i'm so honored to be here you guys like help me think this it's it's so hard to like be on this podcast and not just listen to you two and be like uh-huh uh-huh like i'm at home <laughs> to death panel, but like, no i have to talk Aww. i actually have to talk um but yeah um I think that like it's connected to the bodily autonomy of the pandemic, right? That like that bodily autonomy mm-hmm. yep. has become an active biopolitical weapon. Yep. And more than that, and this is a thing that is my particular, you know, uh, hobby horse, I guess, it's a response to the 2020 uprisings. And mm-hmm. it, the 2020 mm-hmm. uprisings mm-hmm. made it basically impossible to talk about race in the way that white supremacists would like to you know mm-hmm. um and the loss of trump and the sort of the collapse of his coalition and the failure of J6 like and and even them even trump already like they were switching towards Q they were sort of obscuring their open racialist you know remarks already um because of the because of the flavor and so i think like what what is happening here is that attacks on bodily autonomy via trans children um via gestators right to abort um and via the right of the disabled or the immunocompromised or just those who don't want to be sick to not get sick mm-hmm. the attacks on those three vectors have proven a much more successful wedge ideologically than attacking the movement head on right and so like there's this interesting moment as i see it i think and again this is very pie in the sky but like where we are The counter-revolution against the, you know, the abolitionist uprising of 2020 has largely looked like attacks on the bodily autonomy of queers, children, and, um, you know, people with uh, ovaries and people who are disabled. And I think that that's, again, you know, I'm a ranting, paranoid, whatever, if you want to say that. But, like, I think, like, I I think that the way that all of these things are connected and the way that the load-bearing thing here is so often, like this really silly debate about whether someone's sources are real or whatever, like the silly (laughs) silly journalist debate, how like if you just start to pull on that thread, like suddenly you're talking about, or at least I am, suddenly I'm talking about, um, you know, like police precincts on fire. Um, and how this is how liberals are responding to that and putting, trying to put that cat back in the bag. It's maybe, that's just a provocation for someone else to think about. I certainly, you know, it's just something on my mind, but I think Mm -hmm. the way all this stuff gets interconnected through biopolitics and through the Mm -hmm. pandemic And through trans issues and through um, bodily autonomy issues in general, like I think that's been this amazing contribution that y'all at death panel have made to to my understanding of the world. Um, But I also like, it's really important To connect all these things so that we don't get stuck in, you know, arguing about whether such and such a journalist is a transphobe or whatever. They might be, they might not. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah, like, who
2: cares? Right. The result is the same. Those words are out there in the world and they will be used to socially reproduce things that are going to, like, result in furthering this agenda. So it really doesn't matter where they're Mm. coming from. Like, who gives a shit? No, it's not
0: important, right? But that logic of policing that you were alluding to, Vicky, I think we can Mm -hmm. see it. Again, so much of the work that I think, um, you know, we've had to do is just like connecting dots. It's just drawing horizontal lines, right? So if the Ron DeSantis administration in Florida would like to collect data on teenage girls' menstruation in the context of school sports, right? Well, one way to grease the wheels of that very, you know, alarming intrusion um, of the state into...
1: Super creepy and like, yep. like predatory, right? Obviously, yeah.
0: But it's yeah. creepy, Very and predatory, gross, Christian. Yeah, right, but right alongside collecting data on trans kids, like that, it, it is, it is a vice versa situation, right? It's the same yeah. thing where you know, in the uh, rhetorical defense of the gutting of AP African American Studies, right, Desantis will say, "Well, we have to get rid of this content because it includes queer theory," right? I mean, the, the interchangeability mm-hmm. here is not just convenient it's about how state power generalizes a kind of policing or you know the thing that i you know will occasionally call like the cisgender state the state trying to become cisgender it wants to create a kind of gender police structure and carceral structure right that like you know it makes um extreme bans on abortion work much better they're the same legal arguments right like the dobbs decision has been used mm-hmm. um, by state's attorney general in Alabama you know, to argue in federal court for the applicability of bans on gender-affirming care because if there's no right to abortion in the deeply rooted in the nation's history, as Justice Alito put it, then there can be no right to, to gender transition deeply rooted in the nation's history. These are the mm-hmm. same struggles, but of course the way that they're sliced and diced in terms of coverage right, refuses to draw those links. And that, I think, right, again, is where we the structural point of view can actually get us out of the weeds, right? Not just, yeah. a, you know, speculating on the motives of particular journalists or editors, because, yeah, I don't think that that's important at all. But also getting out of the weeds of just debunking misinformation all the time, which, like, I, you know, we've become really good at as a kind of critical culture. But I think debunking has somewhat... I mean, there has to be a time and a place for it, right? And so I'm wondering if the kind of other big plank here, I think like we've we've done a good job sort of tackling why the the concern trolling over childhood is a ruse. But I think the broader issue for me that remains unaddressed and that drawing these horizontal lines would address, right? is the continued moral panic around trans healthcare per se as a way of collapsing trans people's lives into a matter of medicine. That is a form Mm -hmm. of political domination historically. Like That is what the entire history of trans medicine as a field is about. And trans people's memories and ongoing experiences with medicine is that um, subjecting us to the authority of diagnosis and actually the, the panicked but like liberal, ostensibly gender affirming expansion of biocertification processes to determine Mm -hmm. the correct kinds of trans people, right? This is where a lot of the hand wringing actually comes down to is that pundits are pretending that, you know, the biocertification process isn't rigorous enough. To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalog of patron only episodes and be
2: the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops, with love, the death panel.